is good to be with you. We are, it's good to be back in the Psalms, uh, too, this morning. I, I think when, when we as Christians go to the Word, um, we, we often are confused by some of it. I mean, just to be honest, we, we might go to First and Second Chronicles, and we may have a hard time drawing the connection and saying, this is not resonating maybe deeply with our soul. And maybe that means we should spend more time there, and because Jesus said all of this is about him. But when we go to the Psalms, and this is why we love to go there, what we find is there, there is a, there's something in them that resonates deeply with us. And I think for those of us, as you, as you begin to get older, what you find is that there are a lot of complex emotions that are within you that you may not have known were there, and sometimes they surprise you. And sometimes you don't know what to do with them. You know, last week we, we looked at fear, and we go, what do we do with fear? What do we do when we're surprised as we get older, we don't become less fearful, but there's actually more of it. And we ask that question, what does our fear tell us about what we're actually looking at and what we're gazing at? And so the Psalms teach us how to really sing back our emotions to God and to pray them. And they, they teach us really what to do with those things. And so this morning, we're looking at this thing called guilt. And... All of us know something about that. And all of us have to do something with it, um, that we have to do something with our guilt. And this Psalm of David really beautifully describes what we can and really what we must do with it. Um, Martin Luther, the reformer, called this one of the, he called this a Pauline Psalm, um, which of course we know that the Apostle Paul didn't write. Um, any of these psalms. He didn't write this psalm. David did. But what he meant by that was that this psalm really preaches and proclaims to us the free, unmerited grace of God towards sinners, that it really expresses the theology that Paul so clearly describes in Galatians and Romans and Ephesians. And so this morning, um, those of us who are guilty and those of us who are sinners um, let's go to his word, and let's, let's listen, and let's come expectantly um, to see what he has to tell us this morning. Psalm 32, this is a psalm of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, 
all you upright in heart. Amen. This is um, God's Word. It is, a, it is written by David, but it is inspired by God, and it's for our correction, it's for our reproof, it's to point us to our Savior Jesus. And so let's ask that He would do that this morning. Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank You for these words of David, and we thank You that You um, would express such things like this in poetry. We thank You that it is recorded for us, and for, for thousands of years, Your people have, have sung really of the sin of one man and of the repentance of this man. And we have been um, shown the way to you and to your mercy, really through the errors of another. And so, Father, even as we read this psalm this morning, I know that um, for some of us, there were probably audible sighs as we hear these words that it's like our bones are wasting away. Because, Father, many of us know what that feels like. Many of us know what it's like to keep silent. Many of us know what it's like to feel like our strength is being drawn away from us as in the summer heat. And so, Father, I pray that you would return to us this morning the the joy of our salvation. That through the psalm that you would not give us simply moral instruction, but that you would point us to Jesus. And that we might leave here different people. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. When is the last time that you literally shouted for joy? I mean, think about, think about this for a minute. When's the, la- when's the last time that there was something just welling up deep inside of you and that you were so overcome with just raw emotion of joy that you just kind of reared back, I won't do it now, and you just unleashed, that you just shouted because you could not contain it? Now, I mean, unless you're under the age of 10, right, this is probably not necessarily a common occurrence. And it's probably, this is probably not something that you do on a daily basis, is that you find yourself just shouting for joy. You, like, civilized, educated, decent people do not go around shouting, Right? Children do this. I, I was leaving my house the other day. We have a trampoline in our backyard, and my three children were on that trampoline, and I had never been in the front of my house while they were back there jumping on it. And I was amazed at just how loud they were. They were so happy, and they were just they were shouting joyfully. But as we get older, we don't, we don't find ourselves doing that. And yet the Psalms... Over and over and over and over again, tell us, they, they command us to, to shout for joy. I didn't look up how many times that phrase is actually used in the Psalms. You know that it's used a lot if you've read any of them. If you actually look at the very next Psalm, Psalm 33, it begins, shout for joy. But the last verse in this Psalm, David tells us to be glad, and he tells us to rejoice, and he tells us to shout for joy. At the beginning of this psalm, he he starts by saying, blessed is the one, blessed is the man. And many many commentators actually say that that word, blessed, it's not a word that necessarily um, we use a whole lot anymore. Um, He said it's probably a little bit, they, they say it's probably a little too weak, that this really is a word that can also be translated happy. 
which makes more sense really in the, the scheme of what David is doing and saying in the psalm, that this is, this is exuberance, that he's saying, happy is the man whose transgression is forgiven. And so David begins and he ends the psalm with, with happiness and with joy. And I want, to ask, I want to ask all of us this morning, are you happy? Are you happy? Are you, does this sound foreign to you? I said there's something about the Psalms that resonate with us, but there's also parts that we're skeptical of. Does, it, does all of this happiness and joy, does it sort of make you a little skeptical? What, is, what does it mean to be joyful? What does it actually mean to be happy in the way that, that, that David is describing it? What, would it? what does it mean? You know, our country loves to say that we, we have the right to pursue happiness. And yet so many people are not happy. What does it mean to actually find happiness? Because that is what David has found in this psalm. Do you hear it? That, that what David has found is, is joy. And it's not that David has found the right life. He has not found the perfect life. And often that's what we think. We will find joy. We will find happiness when all of the pieces of the puzzle sort of fall into place and the house comes together and the kids are, you know, off at the right college and everything is, and then we will be happy. David's life, from the records that we have of it, is a mess. That he's being hunted down for his life, that he is committing heinous sins that are recorded for all of us to read, and yet in the midst of that, he has joy. I think what David has found in this psalm is what really what every person in this room really wants today. I, I, and I, I would go so far as to say that this is what every person walking on the face of this earth most deeply wants is they want what David has found is joy that comes from having the burden of our guilt lifted off of us. That David has found joy because his guilt and his sin has been confessed and exposed and it has been forgiven and it has been covered and it has been remembered no more. And I think what David is saying to us in the psalm is that if we know that, if that is our source of joy, then we will have that with us in whatever circumstance we're in. That, that things come and go, that, that things change, that, that bad times come and yet there is this fount of joy that is there that comes from forgiveness. And this morning we have to ask ourselves, is that something that brings you joy? Is that where your joy is springing up from? Are, are we looking for happiness in all of these places? Are we expecting it to be around the next corner and yet it never is? Is, is our life joyless? And if so, why? Could David be, could, could he be on to something here? You see, we were not designed, you and I were not made to live in the darkness of shame and guilt and misery. We weren't made for that. We were made 
to be people who live in the light and who live freely before the face of our Creator. That is what He made us for. And David says that through confession and through forgiveness, that that joy of living in that light returns to us. How does that happen? That's what I want to look at this morning. It it happens through confession. And you kind of go, well, I knew there was a catch, right? Um, That sounds good. I want joy. I want happiness. How do we get it? Well, it, it, it happens in this odd way in the Christian life. It comes through not necessarily becoming a better and better person. It comes through admitting how broken and how wrong and how weak we actually are. It comes through confession. And we hate that. And because we hate that, David shows us in this psalm a picture of what it's like to not do it. A picture of what it's like, what, my first point is, that, is, to, is the oppression of hiding. And he gives this vivid illustration of what it looks like to not confess, but instead to hide our sin. And then secondly, this morning, I want to look more at the joy that comes from, from confessing it. But first, let's think about what we all do is that we all want to kind of hide our sin. If any of you have children or you've been around children at all, and especially very small children, what you what you learned almost immediately is that when they do something wrong, they want to hide it. Um, or sometimes even when they are doing something wrong, they're hiding while doing it, right? Um, you've all been through this before yourself probably. You've seen children do this. And um, I remember one, a couple years ago, my wife and I were sitting in our house, and all of a sudden it became very eerily quiet. You know, and if you have children that are small, you know that something's going down, right? Somewhere in this house, something bad is happening. And so I, I sort of snuck upstairs and went to the bathroom door that was closed and flung it open, and there was, I won't name the child, there was one of my children with the Halloween candy just just going at it, just shoving as much in their mouth as they possibly could before they were caught. And, you know, from the time that we were born, we had, we had this impulse in us to hide. That we get older, and I'll talk about this in a minute, the forms of it, you know, get more sophisticated. Um, but often we're really like children who find ourselves in the bathroom stuffing, stuffing our face with candy and then walking back out and sort of pretending like everything is okay. Compose ourselves, wipe the chocolate off our mouth, and keep going, Right? that we have this deep impulse to hide. And why is that? I mean, you you may remember back in the very beginning of Scripture, you remember in the Garden of Eden. You have Adam and Eve, and you have them walking in full harmony with God, and you have them fully exposed that that actually they were not clothed, and it's, it's representative of how fully exposed they were before God. And they walked with Him. And yet they began to doubt that he was actually good. They began to doubt his goodness, and that, that pushed them in to sin against him. And what do they do when they sin against him? The, the first thing that they do is they run and they hide in the bushes. And it's such a, such a silly picture that, that we can hide from this God who created us behind the bushes, and yet they do it anyway. They go and hide behind the bushes, and they begin to sew um, clothing out of, out of fig leaves. 
that impulse is really what David is describing in verses 3 and 4, that, that it's to cover, it's, it's this desire for us to cover our own sin. It's this desire to, what he calls is to keep silent. I mean, you know what this is like? Is to, well, I just won't say anything, I mean, I won't say anything about it, and maybe no one will ever know, Right? As we get older, I think it becomes, in some ways, it becomes easier to hide. We don't necessarily have parents tiptoeing up the stairs, uh, ready to bust us in the bathroom. That it becomes easier to hide because we can walk in this morning and nobody knows that we couldn't sleep last night because we have accumulated a massive amount of credit card debt that our spouse doesn't know about. That's easy to hide. Nobody knows that. It's easy for us to hide the fact that in our minds we obsess over everything that maybe we've eaten this week to the point where we can think of nothing else. And those thoughts are controlling us. And even right now, you are, you are so remorseful of what you had for breakfast that you're thinking about the next time you can exercise so that you might work it off. And the exercising... It's just something that you do, right? And people look at you and kind of praise it and say, oh, they're so healthy. And yet, if you miss a day, you just beat yourself up with guilt. That it's easy for us to, as adults to, to begin to hide. It's, it's easy for us to hide an addiction to painkillers. It's easy for us to hide an addiction to alcohol or to pornography that nobody necessarily has to see it, that we can keep it behind closed doors, that it's easy for us to hide greed. Right? I mean, everyone around us has a lot, and so we have a lot too, and we want to accumulate more, and we gaze through the catalogs, and our, and our minds are just drawn to the things that we need. And it's easy to hide because we live in a culture of greed. And so we can walk into church on Sunday morning, and we can smile, and we can shake hands, and we can sing, and we can pray, and yet we can be utterly alone in our sin. That we can have, have built up walls around us, that we can have, have sewn together these fig leaves around us so that nobody can really see the sin, and we could come in, and we can, we can do the religious things, and yet we can be utterly isolated, and we can be utterly alone. And We've all done this to one degree or another. That I've certainly done this. That we've all, we've all deciphered, really, these ways in which we can hide, to not be exposed. And as we get older, it sort of moves from maybe running into the closet and eating candy to sort of just learning the things to do in life so that people will not question us, Right? Um, that we can learn to maybe say the right things and we can learn to wear the right things and to go to the right events and to buy a house in the right neighborhood and, and to do all these things that sort of the American dream tells us will make us happy. But really what we find is what we're doing maybe sometimes is developing this sophisticated form of hiding what is most broken about us. The aspects of our personality that we find just to be sort of the way we are, are just we're sort of cute, are ways in which we keep people away from getting a little bit too close to seeing our sin. That we've, 
we found ways to hide. And I think that what most of us who have ever done this before, and obviously David has done this, what we find is that it robs us of our joy, that it isolates us from everyone else. I mean, look at the way that he describes this in this psalm. It says to keep silent about our sin. To, he says he uncovered it, sin before God, which implies that before he was covering it up. To do that, basically what he is saying, I mean, to put it in a nutshell, it will destroy you, right? He's saying it can, everything can look great on the outside, and inside can be this fire that is burning, that is eating you alive. We've all felt that. I mean, we felt that feeling that our sin is, that, that we're holding back, that, that, that we don't want to confess is really, it, it's like our bones are wasting away. That we can be in the midst of a crowd, that we can be in the midst of um, a community, we can be in the midst of the church, and yet we might find ourselves completely isolated and alone. Sort of that thought that sort of, if, if I confess, if people knew about me, then, then my life would be lost. If they really knew who I was, then, then everything would change. And I don't know if you read the quote on the front of your bulletin or not from Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Um, I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it to you now. It's from his little book, Life Together. He said, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. It may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship and service, may still be left to their loneliness. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with the undevout, as the undevout, whoops, sorry, though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everyone must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone in our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. Brian mentioned that I'm the campus minister at Furman University, and when I first came to Furman four years ago, uh, the first person that I sat down with to have, have lunch with was a, a girl who was a senior, had been there all four years. And I, this was really my first time to meet this girl she wanted to meet, and she had been very involved in the ministry and RUF. And, and so I sat down and just sort of asked her, you know, how has your experience been at Furman? What do you think about, about Furman? And her response really sort of took me off guard. It really shocked me. And it really um, helped me in a lot of ways. Because what she said was this. She said, well, look around. And we were sitting on the edge of the lake at Furman, and there's the bell tower, and there's swans that are swimming. And there was people walking by with their book bags, and it looks like a very collegiate place, right? And um, she said, it's beautiful, isn't it? And I said, yes, it's beautiful. One of the most beautiful campuses in America, so I'm told, right? And she said, and look at the people. They're busy aren't they? And they're smiling, and they're walking, and they're going somewhere, and they're doing something. And I said, yes, they are. And she said, and look, they're smiling, right? And I said, yes, most of them are smiling. And she said, you know what? They're all miserable. 
And, you know, I, I mean, my first reaction was to kind of think, well, I found one bitter girl, right? Um, she's been burned, and she is bitter. And maybe some of that was true. But what I found over the next four years is that there was a lot of truth in what she said. Because the place that seems so perfect, and the place that seems so ideal, and a place that seems where everyone is so together, is a place where it is not safe to show weakness. And it is a place where it is not safe to be broken. And if you expose your sins at Furman, there is, there is a high likelihood that you will get squashed by the next person trying to get over and above you. This is a safe place. Where you found yourself this morning is, is a safe place. That this is a safe place to expose your sin. That this is a safe place to be broken. And to actually show the fact that you're weak. And not only is it a safe place to do that, but the church is a community of sinners who desperately need forgiveness and who need Jesus. And as we saw in the baptism this morning, the first question reveals that. We desperately need this. And so the place that we are right now is not a place where it's just okay to confess. And not just a place where it's okay to show that we actually have sin. It's a place that it, where it's required of you. It's a place where we cannot walk around and act like there is nothing wrong here. Because by admission of saying that we are Christians... We are saying that we are an utter mess. We are saying we desperately need not a place where nice people come to hear instruction on how to be better people, but a place where people who are horribly broken come to hear where they might be shown mercy and grace and forgiveness. Is that, is why, is that why you're here this morning? Are you here because you have looked at yourself and you have seen, I am a broken mess and I need to hear again about grace. I need to hear again about Jesus. I need to come and to confess that. What are the ways in which you've learned to hide? What are the ways in which you keep silent about your sin? What are the ways in which you've developed aspects of your personality to keep people away? One of the things I've seen over and over and again in my life is that my humor and my sarcasm has been a way that I've developed to keep people from getting too close to me. And I can drop a little nugget or a little bomb so that you don't get too close and see what's going on. And I've had to go back and confess again and again my sarcasm and the way that it tears down other people to keep me hidden. What are the aspects of even your personality that you have developed over time in order to keep the walls up, people away, so that confession does not have to happen. And while you're asking that question, ask this question. Is it connected to your lack of joy? Is the reason that maybe this morning you're saying, there is no joy in my life, is it because you are hiding? Joy, David shows us in this psalm, comes through confession. 
joy comes through confession. It is one of the upside-down things about Christianity that the world wants us to never show our weaknesses. And yet Christianity says that unless you do, you will never find life. You will never find life unless you confess. And what keeps us hiding is, is fear that if we come out in the open, we will be condemned. It is fear that if God sees us like we really are, which He already does, but if He sees us like we really are, and the people around us see us as we really are, then we will be condemned. And listen to what David says in this psalm. He says, I was wasting away, and yet I said, I will confess to the Lord. I'm going to confess. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to come clean. I'm going to Him. And what happens? He says, and He forgave That joy doesn't come just in being honest. That we don't just walk around and go, we're such honest people about our sin. That joy comes because through our honesty and through our confession, we find that our God is merciful and gracious and He is one who loves to forgive us. For David, that changes everything. For us, that should change everything because that means that the mask can come down and sometimes that's painful. Sometimes they have to be sort of peeled away for the, true, for the true self to actually come out. Listen, listen to me this morning. Look, look at me and listen to me. You don't have to hide. You don't have to hide. Do you see why David is happy? <laughs> Do you see what causes him joy? That he says, I don't have to hide anymore. I don't have to live behind a wall and I don't have to live behind a mask because I have confessed my sin unto God and He has forgiven me. And if He has forgiven me, then what can man do against me? And that David begins to live as a free man. Even in the midst of trial, even in the midst of circumstances, David is somebody who has found true joy. Blessed is the man, is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Happy is the man whose sin is covered, not by him, but by God. David has found joy. This morning, if you have confessed Christ, do you understand you have been set free by his love? And listen to what David says. I mean, in verse 1 and 2, blessed are those who have been forgiven, whose sin has been covered by God, so that he no longer, God no longer sees it. He's covered it. That as we said this morning, that has been thrown into the depths of sea, that he no longer counts it against us. That he's not waiting to a point later in your life and saying, I remember what you did when you were 17, and it will come back to haunt you. <laughs> that he says, you've been set free from that. That it is covered, that it is forgiven, that it is no more. And that because of that, David goes on after he confesses, and he, sa- he, start- he begins to describe what that is like, that that God becomes a hiding place for him, that he's no longer hiding from everyone else, and that he's no longer hiding from God, but he's now actually hiding in God. What a beautiful turn. That God becomes the only place that is safe. Because God is the one who forgives, and God is the one who has loved him. And so David says, you are a hiding place in that you surround me with shouts of deliverance. It doesn't feel sometimes like, especially as you begin to sort of shrink away and you know what it's like to sort of hide in your sin, 
that you, feel, you start to feel like, I want to hide more. And then you start to feel like everything in life is sort of condemning you. There's a paranoia. Will they find out? Will they see me like I really am? And David says, you are a hiding place and you shout to me deliverance. That when the condemnation comes, when, when, the, when, when you start to feel that urge to hide somewhere else, that he is shouting to you that you are free, that I've forgiven you, that you are delivered, that you no longer have to hide. And then finally in that last verse, he shows us that you've actually been given really a new name, that you are now called righteous. I mean, you read that verse, verse 11, and he says, Be glad and rejoice. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. You're saying, well, who are the righteous? That's you. <laughs> That's you. The righteous are the ones who confess their sin and hide it no more. The righteous are not the ones who have somehow pulled their life together. The, the righteous are the ones who are no longer hiding but confessing. And what that might mean is that the righteous don't always look to be what we would consider the best Christians. Do you see how freeing this was for David? Because David has his life recorded for us in Scripture. Um, David has murder and his adultery recorded for us. And we, re- and we have read this, and, and people have read this through centuries, and David is out in the open, and he is, he is hiding no more. He puts his name, it's not printed in your bulletin, but in, if you, in your Bible, it would say at the top, a masculine of David. That David's name is on this psalm where he says, I am one who who hid for a long time. That David says, I'm going to write a psalm about my sin and we're going to sing it forever. (laughs) The church is going to gather together and they're going to sing about my sin. Do you see the, the freedom that has come for David? That he's not worried about the condemnation of man. Charles Spurgeon said, I never think that a man is truly penitent who is ashamed to teach others repentance by his own particular sin. And David says that even my sin here is an opportunity to show people and point them to the grace of God. It's not that he's flaunting his sin. It's not that he's causing us to want to mimic his sin. He's saying, I, will, I, I won't hide this anymore because what I've found is that when I confessed this, he forgave it. He forgave the most heinous things. So the discovery of more sin is just another reason to run back into the arms of the Father. If you've ever played hide-and-seek with a two-year-old, you've experienced really what this is like. That a two-year-old, will, hide, will when, you, when you count to ten and you say, ready or not, here I come, a two-year-old will pop out within seconds Right? And they will say, here I am, Daddy. And they'll run to you. And you know why? Because a two-year-old does not want to be in a dark corner. They want to be with their dad. Do you want to be in a dark corner? Or do you want to be with your father? Because today he is, he's calling us to confession because he is a God who loves to forgive, and He is a God who wants you to experience true joy and true happiness. And so this morning, if you're, 
If you're one who doesn't believe, and if you're here asking those questions, don't you see that this is, a, this is an invitation to you? This is an invitation to lay down the burden of guilt and sin that I know is burning within you. Because Jesus said, and you may say, you don't even know who I am and you don't know what I've done. Jesus said, there is no one who will come to me that I will cast out. There is no one. It doesn't matter what you have done. If you go to Jesus, he said, I will not cast you out. And for those of us who like us described in the psalm, like, are like mules. I'm a mule. <laughs> and they have to be sort of tethered with a, a bit and a bridle and dragged back to confess again. And to say and to admit again, because I am stubborn like a mule, and say, I was wrong, I am wrong, and I confess it. Would you see in the psalm that there is joy that is offered to you this morning? That there is joy now, in the, in the present for you, because of the work that is Jesus has done on your behalf. There's a surprising joy in confession because our God is a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. And we see that in His Son, He offers forgiveness. And that forgiveness leads to joy. And it's offered to you this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for Jesus and we thank you for his life and death and we thank you for his resurrection and we thank you that it allows us to come out of hiding, that we don't have to to hide in the bushes anymore, but we can come to you and we can show you what we've done and we can be assured of your grace and forgiveness. And Father, um, I pray for all of us this morning that you would allow us to do that, Um, that you would allow us to experience some of the joy and happiness that comes with it, that you would allow us as a community and as a church um, to confess Uh, to one another, to confess to you and to also to confess to one another, to maybe go home today and confess to our spouse or maybe to to our children. Maybe find someone in the church that we need to confess to. Father, may we expect on the other end of that um, great joy and forgiveness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.